Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to a new episode of Blockhead. Today we have a really special episode for you. I'm really excited about it. Jay Stevens, cartoonist and creator of such great animated shows such as Tuttenstein from the Discovery Channel, Emmy Award winning uh, cartoon from the Discovery Channel, The Secret Saturdays from Cartoon Network, uh, comic book characters such as Jet Cat, which was also animated, and Atomic City Tales, and The Land of Nod, and so many other great comics from the early 90s and through the early 2000s, in fact. Uh, Jay is here to talk about a brand new project that I absolutely love. It's called Dwellings, and it is a mashup of horror movie blood and gore with Harvey Comics kid-friendly artwork in the style of Casper and Richie Rich, if you can believe it, uh, bringing together these two disparate concepts, these very different ideas to see what happens. Uh, And it is completely unexpected. It is Jay's first project in like 20 years in comics after a whole career in animation. And it is, uh, Dwellings is is terrific. What a great return to form in comics. And um, it is as entertaining and fun and smart as it sounds. And uh, Dwellings number one was a big success a couple of months ago on Kickstarter. And now, uh, as as I record this today, Dwellings number two is in its last week on Kickstarter, and it looks to be an even bigger success than Dwellings number one. And let me tell you, if you've looked at it, then you know why. If you if you were on board for Dwellings number one, uh, you know why Dwellings number two is even bigger because people people who were there the first time around can't wait to get their hands on number two. Uh, and that says something, right? You know, uh, all of those folks who were there with number one have come along for number two. Really excited about it. There's a lot of enthusiasm around this project, and I'm I'm enthusiastic too. I'm I'm a supporter, and uh, and like I said, it's even bigger than Dwellings Number One. So it's bringing along new people as well who've heard about this project from Jay's Instagram account, from Black Eye Books. Uh, um, from a variety of different sources, from word of mouth, how great this project is. And so it's in its last week on Kickstarter. Head on over there. Look look up uh, Dwellings num- uh, number 2 by Jay Stevens and Black Eye Books and, um, and get on board because there are stretch goals too. Now is the time to do that, uh, to make those stretch goals happen. And, uh, and you're not going to want to miss it, um, really, because this is just a terrific, not only is it a terrific comic book and it's terrific to read in digital format and all that, but it's also an art object. And I think you're going to love the printed product in your hand. So um, be sure to check it out, right? Kickstarter, Jay Stevens, Dwellings, number two from Black Eye Books. Um, you won't be disappointed. So Jay and I have a career-spanning conversation that uh, was just so great, so enjoyable. I really had a, a great time talking with Jay, uh, and there's so much to talk about with him. 
regarding a very rich career that, you know, is both in comics and uh, and independent comics in the 90s and early 2000s. And, and then, you know, makes that leap. So many of us have dreamt about, well, Jay actually did it, gone from, from making independent self-published comics to the world of, of animation. And... Uh, and it's a, it's a great story. It's a cautionary story also, and Jay has a lot to relate in regard to it. So I hope you get out of it what I got out of it, which is, you know, so much in the way of inspiration. Before we get into it with Jay, though, I've got my own project that I want to pitch to you, and it's a, it's a new comic book I'm really excited about. It's called Green Screen, and it is about a movie star and a stuntman lost in a universe where every movie is a real world. So you might want to check it out on Webtoons. You can pick up a printed copy at Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash Jeff Grogan Art, or you can even go to Comixology or drive through Comics and pick up a, a digital copy there. I'm really excited about it. This is a series that is, um, it's been a story I've wanted to tell for a while, and uh, I did a little bit of animation around it a couple years ago. You can see that little animation. It'll tell you a little bit about where the story goes on my YouTube channel. That's Jeff Grogan's Blockhead, and the piece is called Bella's TV Trailer, I think. And uh, and if you can't afford the the printed copy, or you're not ready to spring for the printed copy, follow it on Webtoons Canvas, Green Screen, or on Instagram, at GreenScreenCom. Uh, I love to see new followers there. It'd be great to interact with you, talk about the comic there. I'm having a blast with it, and I think you're going to enjoy it. People who've read it so far have told me it's a lot of fun. So on Instagram, at GreenScreenComic, or on Webtoons Canvas. Back to the topic at hand, and that's Jay Stevens. And Jay Stevens, and uh, it's so great to see him come back and working at such a level of mastery that is, uh, it's, like I said, it's really inspiring exciting and uh you know go out and check out the book okay and make sure you head on over to black eye books too uh it's black eye dot c what is it black dot c a um you can go to their website uh, find out more about the kickstarter you can also uh find out about their past history my uh, michelle vrana and uh, his history in publishing comics which is a rich and diverse history and uh, a really terrific catalog they have there. Uh, and you can pick up digital copies of Jay's work and a whole bunch of other things too. So head on over to blackeye.ca. So without further ado then, Jay Stevens and myself in conversation. Hey, Jay Stevens, welcome to Blockhead. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jeff. Oh man, it's so it's so cool to have you. I can't believe uh, you're here. Uh, I'm I'm a big <laughs> fan of your work, man. I just oh, thanks. <laughs> I have loved your stuff for a long time, and uh, it's just so nice to be able to connect this way. Congratulations, <laughs> man, on the Kickstarter for Dwellings Number Two. I think it's just wrapping up, right? Yeah, yeah. We've got one week left, and uh, another success. Yeah, this might be the new way to do this. Man, it's unbelievable, and. And this is the first project for you in comics in a long time, right? I mean, you did DJX. You came back and reprinted a, a, a retrospective kind of collection. Right. That's what started right. this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It had been a long break. It, it wasn't like I wasn't still drawing. Um, I'd been doing some illustrative work um, and some short form comics. I was doing comics for Owl and Chickadee Magazine, um, which... Canadian listeners will be familiar with. I don't know what their circulation's like in the States. Um, but yeah, as a long-term 
comic project, something that's, that's you know, mm-hmm. uh, 24 to 36 pages and ongoing. Yeah, I haven't done that in a couple of decades. Yeah, and here it is, and the fan base is still there waiting for new J. Stevens comic book work. And uh, and, believe it. (laughs) Yeah, they showed up in droves, right, for Dwellings number one and now Dwellings number two. And uh, I just couldn't be so more excited about the project. I just think it's such a great piece of work and such a great concept. Where where did that concept come from? So uh, it's really interesting. I mean, I guess just creatively speaking, it's it's a bit um, risky. It's a strange combo, you know, a Harvey comic style sort of '60s kids comic style um, comic, but that yeah. is telling true, you know, like actual horrific horror stories. And um, the, really, it's just a combination of a couple of passions of mine: the style of drawing, and I'm a big horror movie buff and horror, horror short story buff. Um, honestly, it had never occurred to me to to sort of do this kind of mashup before and um what happened was you know michelle vrana who is uh an old friend and actually my first comics publisher from back in uh art school and tragedy strikes press and black the original version of black eye Mm -hmm. um you know he has come back to publishing um after a couple of decades of being you know an Mm award-winning book designer and he just had this sort of nostalgic thing he was going through old files and he called me up one day and just said do you have anything that you'd like to publish like i'd like to test this model you know all these new tools that we never had when we were independent publishers in the past right um and so i said well i've got these never collected stories and that's how um dejex came about Mm -hmm. uh so we we put that together and then we did a mini tour for it and what was interesting is having been away from comics for so long, <laughs> um, a lot of the, a lot of the questions from the audience at the show, uh, at these um, appearances, mm-hmm. um, or a lot of their observations were about how I combine something that looks like a kid comic with some weirder, darker jokes. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I hadn't been objective enough to see that in my own material, to be honest. I thought sure. I was just goofing around. And so I think that's where it came together. I thought, oh, maybe that is what I do. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm, you know, subversive and disarming in the way I draw. And maybe, maybe I could push that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I pitched Michelle on this idea of what if I did something new? And, um, I mean, really, at this point, I've got nothing to lose. So I had no idea if anyone would care. <laughs> I really <laughs> didn't. I had no idea. I'm glad that there are people that get, get it. Yeah. Oh man, it, it's such an exciting project, and for folks who, folks who are not aware of dwellings, uh, I don't know where you've been. Um, you got to check out <laughs> Jay's Instagram account, um, Jay Popgun, right at Instagram, yep, that's right. and at Jay Popgun, and um, and Black Eye Books, and the Kickstarter, and dwellings is this just unbelievable. It's like, it's as though you had bought a Harvey comic book, Richie Rich or Little Lulu or one of those comics brought it into today and yet you open it up and instead of Casper or any of those characters, instead you get this murder story and blood <laughs> gore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, thank you. I was hoping that the horror might seem more shocking mm-hmm. when the... uh 
the sort of familiar looking retro graphics kind of would pull you in, you know, you, you're, you're disarmed. Yeah. And I think it, I think it works because I've had a lot of people tell me how grossed out they were. <laughs> sure. Oh my God. I, actually up on my screen right now is a page from dwellings where one of the, and just, this is a spoiler alert, I suppose. One <laughs> of the crows is, is pulling an eye out of this poor little dog oh yeah <laughs> I mean, it's and it looks beautiful you know it's like this it's right out of uh it, it looks like a kid it's meant for a kid's book and and you know you just wouldn't want your children to pick this up at least you know your six and seven year olds this is unbelievable <laughs> but it's great it's great and and the whole comic book is great i mean you've also uh, you've always had a great love of old comics and, and the way they put, they're put together and you've got old faux ads in here and, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah. you know, cracks in the comic book cover and it's just so great. It, it really is. What a wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I was really trying to create, um, you know, not just a, a, a neat mashup story, but also kind of an art object. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I did post a couple of videos during both campaigns. They're all up on my YouTube channel in case anybody is interested. But mm -hmm. um, in one of them, I'm describing that idea of that, like I get personally get a huge thrill out of being at like an antique store or market mm -hmm. and going through all the old comics. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, and they're not in great condition. They've been pre-loved, let's say. Yeah. Um, reader's, copies. readers copies which is so great you can grab a stack of them and uh I, I you know i'm just i'm just such a nostalgic guy that i wanted to try to like what if it was a brand new old comic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. unlike anything you ever read so yeah i i really wanted the object itself to look um aged yeah it's it's weird you know it makes me think of what if you had as somebody it, it's almost like if you had took this comic you took dwellings and you stuck it in the flea market you know with all of the other old comics and somebody picked it up and they thought you know this came from like the 1950s or something you know or or 60s or 70s is more like it but you know yeah. it, it's really uh, what a shock that would be can you imagine somebody actually it makes me think that you know we should we should find a way to do that, you know, <laughs> take copies of the copy, the comic and stick it in with a bunch of old cop comics at a flea market or something and see what oh. happens. It, I mean, it'll happen eventually. That's the thing, right? Is that, you know, I don't know, 10 years down the line, someone's going to sell a box of comics with this in it and it's, it's going to get mixed in. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh you know? my God. How subversive is that? Yeah. Uh, it's, but it's great. Yeah. And though somebody will hand, Oh, just think about this. This, uh, somebody's going to take that comic with a stack of comics they bought at the, at the flea market. They're going to give it to somebody's kid, you know, and oh, that no. kid's going to open this up. <laughs> oh, what have I done? <laughs> But, you know, if I was a kid, and you're right, not six or seven, but if I was an 11-year-old kid yeah. and I accidentally found that, I'd be thrilled. Sure. I was really into that stuff back then. Yeah, yeah. You were really – the horror movies, horror, the whole horror genre was a thing that, that was big for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a little uh, too late. I'm past the cutoff to be what they call a monster kid, you know, the kids that uh, grew up in the 50s and 60s with – you know, late night monster hosts and double features and yes. um, that sort of uh, the plastic Aurora model kits and all that stuff. But um, born in 71, I was still getting a little bit of that. And I did have those glow in the dark model kits and um, all those monster magazines from the 70s. So, yeah, just been a fan since I was a kid. Although at first it was the first horror stuff I saw was 
effectively terrifying. I was scared of it. And I think I continued to pursue it, almost challenged myself to get into it at first, even though I didn't like it at first, because mm-hmm. I wanted to overcome it. I wanted to befriend the monsters. <laughs> you know? Make friends of these groovy ghoulies. Kind yeah. Of thing. Maybe uh-huh. they'll be on my side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep, yeah. Keep, keep your enemies close kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me, you know, I grew up in the sixties with all of that stuff and, uh, um, there were always older kids in the neighborhood. Now, did you have like an older brother who kind of, you know, uh, turned you to the dark side or how was it that you were introduced to all of these artifacts, which by the time you were coming up in the late seventies were kind of hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm the, I'm the oldest sibling. Um, so I have one younger brother and was close with my, my cousins on Mm. my mother's side and they're all younger. I'm the oldest, but, um, there were certainly, um, other kids in the neighborhood and I had other cousins on the other side of the family who were older. So that was definitely happening. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say, you know, my family, um, has always been into, um, antiquing. Which is weird. I mean, in the in the early seventies, that was not really oh, yeah. a thing yet. But um, as as far back as I can remember, we were going to flea markets and garage sales and antique markets. Um, my father's been um, in the business of selling antiques too, on and off over the years. So um, I think that's really where I found this stuff. You know, they'd say, uh, you know, be patient, we'll buy you something. And I was attracted to this uh-huh. stuff that was getting, you know um regurgitated yeah. back into into um a used market that's where i found it's it for all my old comic books too that's how i um f- like i wasn't attached to any fandom i it wasn't like that back in the day you'd have to write in i guess the comics to start to connect with other fans so right. at first even though i was in love with comic books that i was buying off the shelf um at the grocery store or the convenience store mm-hmm. you know before there were comic shops you would have these like in a previous issue little blurbs but um i had no concept at all about how far back um the history of comic books went until i was at these antique shops and seeing these older versions of the characters i was already into so yeah it was really it was really the the secondhand market where i discovered my passions for for things that i still still dig well, you know, it's interesting if you follow your Instagram account, the images of the comics that you put put up, man, I would love that. I want to steal your comic book collection. <laughs> There's some great I, stuff there. I do have some good stuff that I've collected over the years. It's true. And, you know, I've I've um, kind of weeded out a lot of my collection, too. But there are some stuff I just, yeah, I won't be letting go of. Well, yeah. And it's it's not the typical like, you know, I've got and went back and collected recollected a lot of you know silver age stuff from my childhood that got mm. lost along the way you know fantastic four 60s superman and jimmy olsen stuff but you've got stuff that's not like you know that that's expected it's expected that the middle-aged guy is going to go back and recollect yeah. all the superhero stuff but you've collected like you know the Harvey comics and the Archie comics and uh, things of that nature. The, and some like mm. Archie's Madhouse, which is like a weird, you know, off off the beaten track kind of Archie comic. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. You just don't find people. It, it's <laughs> rare, you know. That, and now I look at that stuff and go, oh, man, geez, why didn't I collect that? That's so cool. 
And yeah. what's really weird about that stuff too is um, I was just attracted to it because it was different and interesting, mm-hmm. and I would find one here or there, and then be like, oh, I gotta find these. Nobody wanted those yeah. 10, 20 years ago. So I snapped those up for nothing back in the day. And now they're really rare because um, I guess more of those got thrown out. You yeah. know, like superhero fans recognized the value or and or just were more attached to them and kept them. But if you think of like Archie and Harvey stuff, yeah. it was intended for a younger audience. As you outgrew those, you would just throw them out. Yeah. And yeah. so actually they're getting harder and harder to find now. I couldn't afford my collection now if I wanted to buy it from scratch. <laughs> that's, a, you know, that's really, and it really interesting point uh, because, and it is a d- distinguishing characteristic for years. We didn't know who those artists were, you know, who Dan right. DiCarlo was, who Stan right. Goldberg was, who Harry Lucy was, who Ernie Cohen was. I mean, all those guys who did work anonymously for those yeah. companies were not people we revered in the same way we revered Wally Wood and Jack Kirby and, you know, all of the big names, Gene Coleman, right. you know, all those guys. And, and, uh, the same thing happened with the comics because we didn't revere them. And now all of a sudden, you know, you look at what you're doing with that material and you realize, and, and this also strikes a chord because I'm a big Jaime Hernandez fan. Oh, me too. You me know, too. Yeah. And you know, just, yeah, he's so great. And oh, man. he just turned, you know, he started talking about Harry Lucy a couple of years ago and I was like, that's the guy, you know, that's the yeah. guy who's the great Archie artist, you know? Yeah. He has those stiff poses. And then when they're yeah. in motion, they become like lightning bolts yeah. across the page. And yeah. Yeah. I had no, I had no names for, for them either. And yeah, actually it was through Jaime that I first heard the name Harry Lucy too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you Al know, Wiseman on Dennis the Man. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, you got to really dig for that stuff. And, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point, too, is that in early superhero comic books or, or, or horror, mm-hmm. you know, the artists were allowed to sign their names. And not always. And it, I wonder if that doesn't make a huge difference in both the audience and the creators in taking it more seriously. I mean, you know, it's not art until you sign it. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I wonder if there isn't a subconscious thing too, um, even as a kid, as a reader, that you're, if the stuff's anonymous, well, then it's, it's not really art, is it? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and you're absolutely right, you know, because we didn't know who those guys were. And this goes back to our attitudes. I mean, the attitudes, prevailing attitudes about the fifties comics, you know, from DC or someplace, um, or even Charlton where you, you just didn't know who was making these comics and when right. you're right, when you don't know, there is a big distinction there. Art is something where we can identify the artist and, and we want to know who the artist is, but it's product when it's not, and it's mass produced product. When Exactly. It's, it's like yeah. a, it's like a chocolate bar. Um, yeah. it's, it's a commodity. Whereas if there's, if there's a name, you're like, wow, th- somebody drew this, somebody made this, yeah. um, there's a deeper connection. Yeah. I, I just wonder if that didn't contribute to kind of the loss or the, um, yeah. these, these works being forgotten yeah. because I think, I think like Warren Kramer, um, who did both extreme horror and Casper for, <laughs> for years, mm-hmm. um, I think he's fantastic. His incline is incredible. Um, and again, I don't think he signed anything. 
Man, you know, and this is something we do take for granted too. And I think this is true when I look at your work too. It's like when we look at work that has been edited down, streamlined, simplified in in the sense of um, a lot of, say, the Harvey cartooning style, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it takes, I don't think people appreciate how much, how much skill it takes you know, to um, to be able to restri- not only restrain oneself, but be that sophisticated in in your visuals, because, you know, to simplify is really one of the trickiest things to do as, as an artist. And uh, and you do it so well with, you know, what you're doing now and what you've done throughout your career. Um, and same thing is true. You know, if you look at what you do, you can turn around on a dime and draw in a style like, you know, like Wally Wood or somebody from EC, you know, Bill Elder, mm-hmm. or, you know, then the other day you just posted a, a, a faux um, Harry Lucy. Uh, yeah. Cover yeah. From number two. Yeah. A stretch goal. And, and that was really cool. And it's just like, you have that same kind of skill. And I think that the people tend to, like almost take it for granted, you know, with those yeah, artists. It's um, it's very true, and it, yeah, I'm obviously attracted to <laughs> the opposite of what you're supposed to do in a, <laughs> in a in a cartooning career. I always loved various forms of cartooning equally. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be uh, Charles Schultz and Jack Kirby um, and Johnny Craig at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, initially when my um, underground comics career started, mm-hmm. I was nowhere near, I mean, it was, pre- it was pretty bad drawing. Uh, I was nowhere near um, a skill set that could do anything like that convincingly. And so I started being irreverent. But even in my first comic, it was like a fake anthology. It was almost like Mad Magazine where I would do a four-page gag this way and then a two-page this way. I had fake ads. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even from the beginning, I was drawing in different styles and I guess just the encouragement of people, a couple of people writing me fan, fan mail. And, uh, I guess I just never stopped being more than one thing. And that's not how you're supposed to do this. Right. You're, you're supposed to develop a distinct style of drawing and you're supposed mm-hmm. to, and a distinct style of, uh, storytelling mm-hmm. and you're supposed to have this trajectory. And I really do think that it's. Um, held me back from one version of success, which is if I'd stuck with, say, my Atomic City Tales style of drawing and sort of a, a retro superhero stuff, I could have had a more uh, robust career that way. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if I'd stuck to just doing the Land of Nod style humor stuff, I could have I could have pushed that forward. But I was creatively rest, restless. I was jumping around. Yeah. Um, but now, at my age, at this stage, I'm I'm really happy that I did that because an, uh, the the different success that I've got is um, I got to practice all these different styles of drawing over the years. So now I feel quite confident that I can draw decent in all those um, styles, and it's it's helped me a lot as an illustrator. Um, I can really jump around um, designing posters and and stuff. I've been doing a lot of Bruyana over the last few years. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a lot of microbreweries here in Southern Ontario. And so I do, I do label design and coasters and, um, and post advertising posters for them too. And I can, I, I like to think I can draw anything. 
Yeah, and it, 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 it's really refreshing too, um, because, like, um, just in terms of experiencing some of your more recent comic work, like, uh, uh, like Arrowhead, for example, is done mm. in a very different style. I mean, it's still got a retro feel to it, but it also feels very contemporary. It's kind of an interesting combination, um, and it's it's you know, in terms of the coloring and uh, which I'm assuming you're doing too. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I uh, love color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do I. And and I I really enjoy the color that you use both in you know the dwellings comics, and and what's happening with Arrowhead too. Uh, you know, it's clear when you look at that, this is somebody who's got that great, you know, wide array of, of tools in the toolbox, you know, and, and that's the same thing. That I think that harkens back, you know, to that generation of people we were talking about mm-hmm. uh, who, who were trained to have that kind of skill set, who could do a variety of different things because you never knew how you're going to have to make your living. Right. Uh, you know, as an artist, as a cartoonist, as an illustrator, one day you might have to be doing spot illustrations for Collier's Magazine or Saturday Evening Post. And then the next yep. you might be doing a, a, a cartoon for who knows, you know, the New Yorker or something. And, and exactly. you know, or, or so, like the aforema- aforementioned Warren Kramer, yeah. who, when he started at Harvey and they had like Black Cat Mystery, he was drawing horror because that's what was selling gross out horror. He's yeah. got that famous like uh, radium dissolving face cover. That's a Warren Kramer cover. Um, and then freelancing with the company, you know, five years later, they're getting into kid, kid stuff. Right. And he's got to learn how to draw, you know, um, Felix the cat, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, you've got to be able to turn around and do, and do that too, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's in those, in that era, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, I went through art school, you went through art school. There was a period of time, uh, in art school where there was like the idea of skill sets was kind of disavowed, particularly in like painting programs. I mean, when, in the years that I was studying painting in the late seventies, uh, early eighties, uh, there, nobody taught you how to paint. It was like, you know, that's kind of old, you know, <laughs> so instead true. of learning how to paint, you just start messing with stuff, you know, yeah. and seeing where it goes. And that, that whole tradition, you know, uh, um, and I don't want to call it an academic tradition, but that whole tradition of, of really learning, you know, some basic skill sets like perspective, you know, uh, things right. like that. You just went by the wayside for a whole generation of folks. And um, yeah, it's true. Uh, in, in art school, I remember my painting teachers. It was it was mostly uh, them trying to tell you what not to do. Yeah, it was like we don't do that anymore. We don't do. You don't need to worry about that anymore. And I was like, well, what what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also got. I, I dropped out of art school. Um, in second year, actually, it was it was infuriated. Um, it just sort of. I had one art teacher, a painting teacher, who uh, we were. I think he did maybe three classes, mm-hmm. and he was. We were painting with only two colors, so he's like, you know, we're just going to use complementary. So you're painting with red and green today, and uh, and anything. You, yeah, you you remember this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then and that was it. And we're going to paint a chair. You're just going to look at the chair, and we did that same thing the next week and then the third week he said okay guys so i'm uh i'm off i'm i'm off in mexico for the next couple of months so um you just got guys just keep coming here on tuesday and and do the same thing (laughs) i'm like you gotta be kidding me i mean we're paying you yeah you're paying money (laughs) and and it suddenly occurred to me that it was highly unlikely that my my teachers in art school who were 
you know, fighting to, to get um, gallery shows. Mm-hmm. It was highly unlikely that they were ever going to teach me everything they knew. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, did, they didn't need 30 new competitors every year. Well, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> so there just, there just isn't enough uh, gallery space for all of these wannabe painters. I mean, and it just struck me. So I was like, okay. I, and at that point, I was getting paid very little to do comics. It was just sort of an accidental thing in underground comics. But they were paying a little bit. And I thought, well, I'm going to take the risk here and do this for a little while before I get back to my painting. Man, and, and it just, worked out. It worked out weirdly. Yeah. How did, did you ever get back to your painting? <laughs> Not really. No. Um, something you went back to. No, I, I still, I do paint every so often. I mean, there was a time too, during my, um, uh, mid career retirement after the daily strip tanked, mm-hmm. um, where I worked, um, managing an art store here in town for a few years Wow. where, um, I wasn't really doing comics at that time at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there was these, you know, fundraising art shows, you uh-huh. know, lots of little, and I'm working in an art store. And so I got back into painting a bit then. I, I did a few paintings during those four years. Um, but I missed the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. When you're hooked to the narrative, I mean, that's the, that's the thing, you know, um, comics people are, we're storytellers and it's always got to be, one image after another image it's there's just something about that that hooks you in and that's that's where you got to go you know uh, one way or the other and uh and and so that's that's an interesting path though interesting to to take that time after you know and we'll get i have lots of other questions so i don't want to (laughs) animation but right away but you know it is interesting to take that to take a step back after a big career in animation and, you know, to take a job managing an art store, which is a business and, um, and can be really demanding when it comes to managing any kind of retail business can be really demanding. Oh, for sure. You know, the pressure, depending on whether it's an, you know, a a mom and pop shop or it's a corporate store or whatever. Um, all those things can be really very different than being in the art, in the studio, making your own work, even, when you're in charge of the business then so yeah boy yeah. well l- let's get to that in a minute but uh, before i get there i, I don't want to forget this question because it's it what kind of horror stuff are you into man i mean or did were you into like for me i'm a big universal monsters fan big yeah. universal monsters fan and, yeah. and that's like that's my wheelhouse i love hammer horror as well i'm not so big into you know the 21st century horror films it's it's um more graphic stuff doesn't grab me but what is it that grabs you well um for sure the first horror that i remember um seeing would have been um universal uh so we had a show in the ontario region called um magic shadows i think it was on tv ontario and hosted by elwee yost really cool uh, movie buff and he would have these retro, um, I think he had something, I think it was called Saturday Night at the Movies. Yeah, that's right. And that was sort of classic movies. But then he had this thing called Magic Shadows, and it was more uh, creepier mystery stuff. And it, my grandparents always had it on. So whenever we were over there, we'd watch King Kong or The Invisible Man, uh-huh. uh-huh. um, uh, Ride of Frankenstein, which is still my favorite, I think. Um, and so I do remember those and falling in love. I think I was obsessed with the Wolfman for a while too. Oh yeah. Um, I just loved that idea of the 
transformation, the animal yeah. uh, transformation. And um, at the same time, though, and this is interesting, when I was a kid, so we're talking, you know, early 70s, mm-hmm. all of the Marvel superhero comics were getting scary. Right. So you had like Morbius, the living vampire, werewolf by night, tomb of Dracula, son of Satan, ghost rider, yeah. uh, man thing. It was all creepy. So it, it synergized for me. For me, it was, it, this was, this was the cool stuff. And there was also an, a Saturday morning show. I think it must've been on at 7am called hilarious house of Frankenstein ah. uh, in the great lakes region. And it was like one of those old horror host shows. It was sort of a, there's this one actor, Billy Van, who played the Count, the the uh, fortune teller, the witch, uh, the Wolfman. Anyway, all and that came on, and then right about right after it was Casper and Friends. So this <laughs> whole mix of that stuff was just everywhere. And you know, I'm eating uh, blueberry cereal for breakfast, watching Hilarious House yeah. of Frankenstein and Casper. Um, but the first movie that really terrified me because those, you know, those those um, Universal ones are scary, but they're black and white. And they're, yeah. Uh, but I saw um, uh, which was, it, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. That was the first Hammer film I saw. Mm-hmm. And uh, saw it accidentally. <laughs> uh, we had a babysitter, my, my brother and I, my kid brother who was younger, uh, named Susan. Uh, my mom was working nights, and uh, she was a single mom at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Susan was a huge horror fan, um, so she was a teenager. Wow, I th- that's interesting. And there was a, a late night showing of um, rare Warner Brothers cartoons followed by um, a Hammer horror film. And she thought, "Oh, this is perfect. The kids will watch the cartoons. They'll get tired. They'll go to bed, mm-hmm. and then I'll watch this horror film." And I pretended to be asleep. Oh, okay. <laughs> my brother actually fell asleep during the cartoons. I pretended to uh-huh. because I caught wind that maybe something special was going to happen after the cartoon sure. and watched the bloodiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that, that really freaked me out. Um, as far as your question, sorry, this is a long answer, but um, it's okay. I'm still really into um, modern horror, but I've, I've become, I mean, also, the definition of, you know, horror is a broad mm-hmm. label. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I've never been super into the slasher subgenre, uh-huh. for example. But um, there are masterpieces in that. I mean, I still think Halloween is terrific. I think oh, it's yeah. a great um, Hitchcock's Psycho is terrific. Yeah. Um, so there are still good slashers being made. Um, but I've always been into more of the monster movie stuff. So ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Creature features, that stuff always gets me excited. And these days, it's movies that have um, sort of a duality um, where, you know, it's possible that everything's being imagined. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. we're just seeing this through someone's perspective, but that that doesn't make the monsters any less real. So, like, I thought Babadook was terrific. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, Recently, there's a, a... Mexican film by Isa Lopez called um, Tigers Are Not Afraid. I thought it was brilliant. Um, I kind of like Del Toro stuff, so I like uh-huh. that um, oh, yeah. sort of nightmarish fairy tale horror. Yeah, yeah. So there's still lots of stuff out there that I that I enjoy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Are you, a, um, and, and it doesn't, I don't know if it falls into horror, but he certainly skirts the line there. Um, Mike McNola's stuff in Hellboy. Is that, a, oh, something? Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. I think, I think, um, Hellboy is that like to me, to me, Hellboy is exactly that synergy, that synthesis that I was talking about when I was a kid where you'd have horror superhero comics. Yeah. And then you'd be watching late night double features and he seems to end and folk tales. Yeah. yeah um, Mike and I have, have been acquainted for years um, back when I was doing underground comics and he, he, he I wanted a little more uh, mainstream exposure and he wanted to, to experiment and be recognized as a, as an auteur. And so we were crossing paths at one point before uh-huh. Before either of us knew how big Hellboy would be. <laughs> yeah, I know. it's yeah, it's astounding, but it, yeah. it's pretty cool though. Yeah, but there, are, it's interesting. There are some connections there, uh, you know, in that. And it's interesting the way when you think about now that I'm I'm thinking about the two of you. Um, interesting the various ways in both of both of you have sort of channeled that that love of horror and love of horror movies and and all of that through your work, and you know, in some ways his his work is um it's got the comic in it but the comic is kind of it, it's like a sub not quite a subtext but it's it's there underneath you know it, with with you it's on the, the surface and the horror like in dwellings for example it, it's cloaked you know like the sugar coating of of candy on the top which is that harvey look to it and then the <laughs> right. horror kind of reveals it once you bite into the candy bar um it, you know of, of dwellings but uh it's it's an interesting thought about the way that that plays out in both of your work because you know it's brought um as you were talking i was thinking about those 70s comics and there's this whole period in when the comics code became kind of relaxed in the early 70s and all of a sudden you found you know all kinds of marvel in particular doing all kinds of horror stuff you know black and white magazines to compete with creepy and eerie and and then they had, uh, you know, uh, Frankenstein, uh, comic books by Mike Plug and, and, oh, yeah. yep. uh, you know, all that great stuff was happening then. And, yeah, Plug uh, was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, those are some of my favorite comic books ever. Oh, yeah. And he did the werewolf run too, I think. Yep. Right? Yep. Werewolf yeah. by night. Yep. Yeah, Werewolf by Night. So uh, Jack Russell was the guy's name. Yeah, yeah, Jack Russell. <laughs> it still cracks me up. I'm like, how seriously are we supposed to take this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, another thing that strikes me, I wanted to touch on this too, because you mentioned Hitchcock. Hitchcock seems to be a touchstone for dwellings a little bit. Am I mistaken oh, sure. there? Or is that... No, no, yeah. especially for the first story. Um, yeah. But I think throughout, yeah. So I, you know, I really have a deep love of that stuff too, the, the classic thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't even know. Do they make movies like that anymore? I, mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess a modern version would be like your um, Along Came a Spider 7 kind of thing. But um, just the, like the idea of like Dial M for Murder or Rope, you yeah. know, something that's just so simple and so menacing. Yeah. Um, the tension is terrific. So I don't know. I, I mean, it's, you know, you can't really call it horror. I would say psycho is is a horror yeah um barely um it's more of a thriller too but i love that stuff i just love the tension and his his way of directing is very comic booky for lack of a better term i I like how i mean he did elaborate storyboards for that yes um and so something about the pacing of it feels familiar to the way that i write 
Um, so definitely there's going to be Hitchcockian rhythm to, to the dwelling stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I sensed it both overtly, you know, through the, the Burst. use of the crows. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, obviously. Yeah. And, yeah. and also exactly what you're saying through the pacing of it. And, and now it's interesting too, because the, the, the use, the panel borders in, in dwellings, um, are directly relatable to your work in animation through storyboarding because they're pretty uniform, although you play with it, you know, here and there and, and do larger panels all along, but the pacing, um, you know, utilizes that, that approach. Did you find it that kind of carried over from your work in animation or was that just, and made it easy for you? Or was that just something that, you know, um, was part of the process of the con of conceptualizing? Well, it's interesting. That's an interesting observation. And, um, for sure the, the panel structures in this do feel, uh, cinematic in their, their longer rectangles and it does feel like animation, but honestly, um, that correlation pre-existed in Harvey comics. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm to mimic the, uh, look, feel and pace of the Harvey's. I just totally swiped their eight panel, um, <laughs> layouts. So it's, it's exactly the format of Harvey. They would have these eight panels per mm -hmm. page, mostly unless it was a splash. And then sometimes they'd be staggered a little bit, you know, just for, um, if you wanted a wider shot or mm -hmm. a close up. And so I'm just, I'm doing what Harvey, uh, Harvey Comics House Style did. And all of those people were initially, when Harvey first got the, I guess it was Paramount by that point, where they got the Casper um, mm -hmm. rights and uh, Harvey, or what's his name, uh, Catnip. I, I, there were a couple of other characters, I'm trying to remember which, Little Audrey. Oh yeah, Little Audrey, sure. When yeah. they first when they first got that stuff, it was the animators from those studios that were were doing the first comics. There was a lot of crossover, so I think that's why the house style ended up being like that. So I think you're right. I think it does directly relate to animation. Um, for me, it was just already there. The template already existed. Yeah, and it works out perfectly, which is really cool, uh, and it and it looks great too. But it's also what's interesting too, talking about simplifying one's imagery and editing you know in order to convey as the proper amount of information in every panel and whatnot there, there's a lot you've got to you've really got to tighten up your point of view when you're working mm. this way um mm. you know and and that's something i think you do and i think again it's easy to take for granted um that you do exceptionally well throughout is convey exactly the you know the right amount of information that we need to know um, and need to to feel uh, all the way through the book, through these you know minimalized panels. You're not really allowed to you know um, go into great illustrative detail within that kind of space. Yeah, yeah. No, I I'm a I've always been a fan of um, minimalism, um, economic graphic cartooning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like um, when in doubt, leave it out. I mean, if it doesn't. You know, detail for the sake of detail doesn't impress me. I mean, you can see beautiful uh, cartooning work where there's there's all you know every leaf on every tree right. is in place, and I love that. I respect it. I think it's great. Um, but if you're turning a page, <laughs> and you're just yeah. going by. You know, maybe that doesn't need to be there. You know, right. I I I see I see especially this kind of cartooning as like an alphabet. It's like a language. 
you know, the, the pictures are, 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 you know, you're hand lettering it and you're hand drawing it. And those are supposed to be hieroglyphics that go by quickly and communicate all that needs to be said, you know? So, um, yeah, that's just the kind of cartooning I've always been attracted to. You know, detail detail appears sometimes, but only really when it needs to. If if, if something needs to be messy or crowded, then it it is. Right, and 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 you go by what the story needs and what the whatever, you know, emotions or psychological uh, ideas you're trying to convey are, rather than any kind of, you know, need to display virtuosic virtuosic technique. Virtual- right. Is how you say uh, that? Anyway. Virtuosity, virtuosity. Yeah, virtu- yeah uh-huh. something. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> I don't know if it's a word. I but, don't know, you know either. You don't. Uh-huh. You don't need to show off. You know, virtuosity. Uh, you need, to, but uh, there's a kind of virtuosity in in and of itself. In you know the restraint and the discipline it takes to, you know, to do what you're doing and and what um what you're talking about in regard to graphics and simplification and the idea that comics is a language and uh yeah but minimalism and you know i'm not advocating for boring looking comics you know you i still spend a lot of time trying to design the pages so that they look good i mean you mentioned a great example earlier i think jaime hernandez is an incredible economist yeah uh like especially his sort of silhouettes is like solid yeah. blacks yeah. it's fantastic and yet realistic the, yeah. the the environment always feels um grounded and real even when he doesn't draw a horizon line sometimes there's sometimes the background is open white and the characters are just standing on it uh but in the foreground you'd have like a stoop or something or and um that's the kind of cartooning i admire yeah me too obviously jaime hernandez is just one of those great guys and, uh, and has a command over that. And, and among, it's interesting. There's a whole generation now that we're talking about yourself included who, um, who, you know, are carrying the mantle of that in a way. And Jaime Hernandez yourself, I think of Seth and Chris Ware, um, people like that who, who really explore the idea of, of design and graphic design, hand in hand with the idea of illustration and the idea that comics are, are a language and the, and the, there's that, that has to be understood in the images. And, and again, that doesn't mean boring or dull images. I'm looking at a page from dwellings now, um, where our main character is eating in a, a little cafe, um, mm. and, or in a, you know, a outdoor, um, beer, uh, patio or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right, and, and the co- the color is just exquisite. You know, the design of the page is beautiful. Thank you. The color is just gorgeous, and I don't know if anybody's going to take. I hope they take the time to pour over what you've done here, because you know, you go from these beautiful, you know, aqua kinds of soft greens to this, you know, uh, the illumination of the interior of the restaurant, um, you know, is in these, these, I don't know if they're sepia or these, you know, soft beige kind of uh, warm colors, just beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful. And and that the way the whole page holds together, you know, I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I don't think back in the day, the guys who, who were doing the coloring for Harvey comics were thinking, you know, the coloring through the way you're thinking the coloring through. And, and it's just, well, they, they didn't have time, <laughs> yeah, they didn't have time. They, but, uh, thank you. And I, and what's interesting too, thanks for mentioning that. Cause I do love oh, color. And so the coloring for dwellings is so fun for me in that, um, going for that retro look, I am limiting my color combinations 
to sort of the old Ben Day Dot combos. I had to bump up the 25 to a 30% because I'm ultimately lightning everything. Anyway, this is that's boring. But the point is, is it's like <laughs> it's like 30%, 50%, mm-hmm. 70%, or 100%. And that's it. So you would think that um, that would be extremely limiting, but there are still lots of possibilities for, for variations of cover, color that would still be color they could have used back then. Yeah. Um, and then, and then just, because I, <laughs> just because I like to play around, I am allowing myself a few modern fades you know, which sure they, some you could do that. You could actually um, ink wash and, you know, acetate for a color separation back in the day. That did happen sometimes that there's a, a great example is Casper sometimes had this like blue line on his, his ghost body. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Like a wash. Um, so it did happen. So I'm not super cheating, but um, I am. Sometimes I amaze myself with you know, the, the color effects I can achieve with such limited palette. Yeah. I'm like, Oh wow, that actually looks, that looks really elaborate. And it's really it, not, it's really, really basic. It's really so amazing how rich the color is all the way through the book and yet how true to the period it feels. And I think that's, you know, crucial. That's the idea is, you know, okay, we don't live in, in 1973, but you know, it's great to be able to, I mean, it, it, it helps the concept succeed, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the whole concept is based in this idea of these children's comics that are being subverted. Okay. So it holds on to that concept, but at the same time, it's got the richness of, you know, 21st century printing technology and, and capability. Right. It feels incredibly authentic, but at the same time, you know, it's also, as you were saying, it's a beautiful art object. And, and it's cartooning really taken to that level. And, and, um, what I appreciate about it is sometimes like, I love Chris Ware stuff, but sometimes it's so cerebral that I get, uh, bogged down in it. And this, mm-hmm. this is just, it's equally, it's just as smart, but it's, it's done in a way that is very accessible and, and very approachable and you get sucked right into it the way you would you know a, a harvey comic book from back in the day wow and thank you that's high praise thank you jeff it's right in my wheelhouse man i, right I, just, <laughs> I just love what you're doing with it i get really when i get really excited about something you know i don't hold back and uh, <laughs> i'm really excited about this work and, and what's interesting too is if you go to uh, your your book djx there's so many different approaches graphically in djx and mm-hmm. You know, it really what is, is a 30 year retrospective in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. And w- what's really cool about it, though, is what comes through all the way through is this love of cartooning, love of of what I would identify as a style of cartooning that has its roots, say, for example, in late you know, forties, early fifties, modernist graphic illustration, um, stuff that shows up. I don't know if you're a fan of UPA's cartoons. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Minimalist background. And yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, one of my favorite moments in all, in all of animation history is Gerald McBoyne McBoyne climbing climbing out of his window and running after the train. Do you remember that scene? I do. That's amazing. You would say that. Yeah. Yeah. That design just, Oh, oh yeah, that's that stuff feels like I'm eating sugar. It's just delicious to watch. It's that stuff. unbelievable. It's so beautiful. And your stuff, you know, and I don't, I don't want you to 
you know, your head to swell too big, but your stuff, <laughs> you know, harkens back to that. And DJX really harkens back to that. Well, thank you. And, and I think as we've mentioned before, I mean, there are certain cartoons in my generation too. Um, but as cartooning as a language, like I'm not the only one, but if, if cartooning and minim, minimalist cartooning, this, this kind of, um, old school shorthand is a language, Mm-hmm. Then maybe maybe some of us are are trying to preserve a dialect. You know, I I never wanted to be a radical boundary pushing cartoonist visually. Mm-hmm. Like I I wasn't interested in, um, and I I'm, I love all cartooning. So this is not this is a personal choice and not any kind of diss. But like I remember when Dave McKean first came along. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, this is so cool. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, um, and there's a lot of um, uh, really edgy cartooning happening right now. And I, I think yeah. it looks fantastic and I love it and I buy it and I read it. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to create a brand new language. I'm trying to preserve these traditional dialects. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It's like finding the art. And what and I think one of the things that happens in what you're doing is that you you go back and you do you find the art in the styles that we were dismissive of you know um back in the day these as you said you know nobody valued harvey comics nobody valued you know richie rich or you know uh casper and they john stanley's little lulu and yeah yeah yeah. Exactly. Not until Seth started bringing John Stanley up or not until oh. Jaime Hernandez mentioned, you know, Harry Lucy or somebody started talking about Al Wiseman and, and all of those guys. Then all of a sudden you begin to go back and say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is the stuff that's just so. And now you can't buy a Harry Lucy original on, you know, uh, or, or whatnot. The prices have gone through the roof because, you know, people yeah. are discovering that again. And I think it's just so important. But I also think, you know, it's not it's it's not you're not only a you know, a museum curator here, you're, you're actually utilizing it to create artwork and, and, you know, a, a personalized statement and you can use this language to make something personal and that's what you're doing. And I think that's, that's great. I just love that. This is exactly the thing that gets me excited now is, is seeing work like this. That's, it's not merely nostalgic, but I love the way you defined nostalgic the other day. In the well, yeah, the the the, the literal translation is to return home in pain. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's true, and that's that's the thing. You you know, like you just said, I'm like you. I've I've gone back to try to find uh, a lot of artifacts of my childhood to repossess those comics and those toys, and um, it the hunt feels fantastic. Mm-hmm. The, the, the whole. <laughs> The hope that it's it's going to bring you that same joy, and then the joy is there, but it's not the same. It can never be the same. No, it's not the same, and that's the thing about this too. Is like, oh man, it's so great. Somebody is taking this language and keeping it alive, and utilizing it to say something new, you know, and mm-hmm. say something interesting. And and it is kind of interesting too, because when you think about the implications of kind of what you're doing, it's not simply bringing together. Uh, you know, an old visual language with something that subverts it. It also says something, you know, when we start stop to think about it, something about the culture, something about, um, you know, how we we engage in popular entertainment, how we mm-hmm. how it's impacted us as a, a society, how children respond to these things. There are a lot of implications in 
in this idea and in this execution in dwellings that I think one could unpack over a period of time. And I think people will unpack over a period of time. There, thank you, because there, there are some uh, definitely intentional, um, um, deeper <laughs> um, aspects of, of the first story and, and probably some unintentional instinctual choices too that are there. But yeah, that basic idea, I mean, it's not just a mashup. That's the hook. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, it's, it's an, I would have loved to see this done by somebody else and it wouldn't have mattered if it was any deeper than that. I would have thought it was cool. Yeah. Um, but you know, the idea that in a horrifying world, um, you would retreat to, you know, the comics of your youth. There's a, there's a lot of that in, in there. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and then also what you find in there sometimes in the case of dwellings is kind of a nightmare too, you know, or the violence that's there. I mean, you expect it. One of the things you expect is to be laughing the way you might laugh at, at an old Harvey comic, but at the same time you want to laugh, but Mm -hmm. then you're seeing these moments of extreme, um, violence that are nonsensical. You just come out of nowhere and tragic yeah just like real violence sometimes there's no real it's not explicable it just sometimes these things happen and there is a real life um there are some real life inspirations for some of uh the stories here too i mean i live in a in a region where things are mostly um hunky-dory and and pleasant and quiet um but shocking things happen in in this Mm -hmm. city and um and they always feel like that. They always feel sudden and random. It, it never feels like a, an expected outcome, does it? Yeah, no. And and, and that's exa- shocking and random. And that's exactly what, and that's, that is the thing about the world that's really scary, you know, for, for mm. people. You know, we, when we go outside, things that happen are shocking and, and, and they are seemingly random. And I think we've, we've sort of encountered that in this past year, you know, with COVID sure. and what, it it just all of a sudden we're confronted with a world where the idea of just everyday existence becomes tenuous and and yeah fragile and um an uncertain future yeah yeah exactly and dwellings i think it it's mining that territory and uh and that's part of what makes it meaningful for now too is is this um is that connection between between the imagery and and the random violence underneath it and uh, yeah, yeah you know i mean it's, yeah it's, it's it's just that i mean if the future is so uncertain you know can we go backwards and of course the answer is no no but yeah. you know, that's dwellings makes you it has the look and feel of going backwards and then it is like mm, no yeah you're not going back escape yeah i mean as a kid there is just that simplicity to it and i don't know about anyone else that collected casper comics when they were a kid or read casper I mean, I was always waiting for the issue where they would tell me how he died. Casper, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. He's a dead That's, kid. What? I mean, so I, I, I never quite understood that, but I was always, I always had this creepy feeling in the back of my head, like, is this the issue where they're going to say how he died? Yes. Oh, I, it, it's fun. It's amazing when you say that all of a sudden it resonates, you know, because I think every kid who reads that comic has got to be thinking the same thing. How did Casper die? Right. How, 
Uh, and that's a really horrific thought, you know, it real, is. It you is. know, and you're, the whole time you're reading the comic book about, you know, Casper and, and Wendy and whatever, you're like wondering how Casper died. And it's true. I, and I, and I forgot about that until you said yeah. that. Yeah. It's really, so, it, so and, that's, so that was always to me anyway, that was always lurking in the back of Harvey comics. It, yeah. There was always a, a, a really morbid, um, backdrop where i'm like okay yeah i mean they would they would always say that the ghosts witches and and devils were like you know hobbits they were like fantasy characters that lived in a fantasy world and i'm like yeah okay that's not what the word ghost means though hey folks it's time to take a break stretch your legs go for a walk get yourself something to drink a little nosh if you will come back for the second hour when you're ready in the meantime here's some information about my latest project what if movies weren't just flickers of light on a screen, but windows into real worlds in alternate dimensions? What if one day you found yourself transported to the land of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the West was chasing after you? In green screen, a Hollywood sex symbol wakes up one morning to find she's in an alternate reality called the Cineverse, where she's no longer a movie star, and every movie ever made is a real world. She travels from one world to another, wrestling with movie monsters and evil empires, struggling to find her way back to a world where movies were just movies, and a green screen only a blank surface. Green Screen is a sci-fi fantasy comedy comic book, 32 pages in full color. You can buy the print edition at Etsy, at Jeff Grogan Art, or subscribe on Webtoon's Canvas. Be sure to follow at Green Screen Comic on Instagram. Or the idea of hot stuff. Now, I was brought up you know, <laughs> yeah. Catholic. To this day, my wife will tell you, devil stories scare the crap out of me. Uh, we watched the TV show Evil um, on was was Netflix or where or HBO or something. Yeah. And I was uh, to to this moment, I'm scared to death. You know, uh, like this idea of demons in your bedroom and you know crawling out at three o'clock in the morning when everybody else is asleep and you're awake, and then you know these. Oh my God, it scares the crap out of me today. <laughs> you're, you're gonna love issue two. Oh man <laughs> <laughs> is hot stuff make an appearance like, <laughs> not quite but yeah <laughs> you know oh my god so being raised catholic that always freaked me out this little devil running around with a pitchfork who's actually a pretty good guy but you know yeah. i mean well, yeah, i'm catholic you know? quite a temper but yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's all that those kind of associations or, you know, if you weren't, exa- I mean, none of us who were reading those comics, I'm assuming, you know, we're rich kids and you read the story about Richie Rich and he's living in this life that's just like beyond your comprehension. You know, it's mm-hmm. a setup for creating class envy. <laughs> you know? For sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I could never, I liked Richie Rich, but I, yeah, I couldn't get into it the same way I could to the other characters. Uh, I just, yeah. It just, it, you know, I just kept thinking, must be nice. Yeah, exactly. No, Hot Stuff was my favorite of, of those. I used to really enjoy those comics. And uh, uh, my grandmother had a stack of Harvey comics in her house that she had had for years because of my cousin and whatnot. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, older kids were coming through. And so they were old comics, no covers on them. But I used to pour yeah. over those a lot. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 there's just so much to... to to investigate in that material and i think it's kind of interesting i think you're doing that in dwellings and it brings it all to mind and and so it's bringing along you know not only 
your personal interest in and in, in your personal story here that you want to tell. Mm-hmm. But it's also causing one to go back and revisit the history and the past and re-examine. Oh, I hope so, yeah. You know, and I think that's really interesting and, and a, a big part of what's interesting about the project. You know, um, Well, and that's, that's the thing, too, is that um, people like you or I, I'd say a good probably 50% of the backers on the Kickstarter campaign um, who are a bit older, they get the Harvey comic stuff right away. Yeah. But um, that can't be the only attractive part of this project right. because um, there are, I mean, I'd say probably most people under 30, definitely under 25 have, have never seen one of those comics. That's so true. Um, so they wouldn't have that uh, connection at all. So it has to be more than that. And I'm finding the Kickstarter campaign has been amazing. It's shocking to me that I kind of figured that some people that used to read my comics back in the 90s mm-hmm. would, would, would be on board for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't counted on the fact that there are um, comic readers – uh, comic fans in their late teens, you know, t- to mid twenties now, who know me from animation. They 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 were too young when I was doing comics. They've never seen my comics on the shelves before. Right. Uh, but but they remember Secret Saturdays and Tuttenstein, and so and they follow me on Instagram for 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 that work. So That's for them funny. for them this is the first comic I've ever done. Yeah, how interesting is that? And you're reaching a whole new generation. And and the connection, it's also interesting, as you were saying, that the connections that you and I have with this material from the past and others of our age will have, they don't have. And so they're coming to it with a very different mindset, you know, yeah. than, than we have. And I wonder how they, have you heard from any of them in terms of from that age group, who how they relate to the stories or how they're they're engaging with the material i have i have heard positive feedback and you know for for a lot of those readers i i mean i'm projecting i haven't heard this directly but um you know these are also um kids who grew up on manga yeah um and there is a lot of great horror manga out there or more adult story manga that still has the cute drawings i mean so so really there is you know they have grown up with this model more than we did this idea that you could have something that looks cute and looks all ages, but that could have some really disturbing elements. So I don't think that the juxtaposition is actually as radical to probably younger readers. It just has to be good enough. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The story just needs to work. Yeah. Yeah. And the story does work. And, and I can't wait for dwellings number two, um, because I mean, it, it really is. It's a great story for people who are not into some of the things that, you know, Jay and I are talking about here, uh, in terms of the connection to history or whatnot, the story is terrific. And, and really, if that's the only way you engage with it, it's still going to grip you and, and grab you and pull you through. And, and it's really interesting too, Jay, when you're talking about younger readers and their connection to manga and, and the diversity of material available to them so different from when we were growing up oh um, definitely you know the the uh, limitations on visualization and this and the kind of you know stigmatization that we applied as as you know dc and marvel kids growing up and things like that just doesn't work for them they're they're really you know immersed in so much 
terms of visual information that stylistically it can come from anywhere um and and work for them uh it it really is it's it's fascinating but it's great that it's reaching a a wide array of readers you know a diverse array of readers Uh, yeah yeah we've been i mean michelle vran is doing most of the doing all of the legwork for the kickstarter what am i saying which is fantastic because i'm not really great at um at adapting new technology and uh I find it, I find that kind of stuff, you know, keeping track of, um, of the financials and the, you know, contacting 10 different printers to see who can pull this off. I find that stuff super stressful. He -hmm. makes it look so easy. I -hmm. honestly couldn't have done this without him. And, um, so he's looking at the statistics of who is backing us. And there are even some, um, dwellings fans who are backing the project who are only finding it on Kickstarter, uh, which uh, to me is also fantastic. That they're just they're just they go to Kickstarter, right? To, to see what's on there and stumble across it. They've never heard of me, you know. They so that's awesome too. We're getting like whole new readers. That's great. That's so cool. And 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 it is great. There is you know Kickstarter is just such a different vehicle. A different way of reaching an audience uh, for comics creators than than what we're used to in the past, and and you know you're speaking directly to them, um, and it's great that they're finding you that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it does stand out though. You know, it does. I mean, the graphics grab you when you see that. You know, the dwellings in uh, um, what do you call it uh, logo or in you know insignia yeah, yeah. on Kickstarter. It just pops. You know, and so. <laughs> Thanks. I hope so. That's great. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, this idea of, of getting to comic shops is pretty, still pretty tricky, I think, through um, Kickstarter and whatnot. Is is dwellings in comic shops? Yes, it is in some select uh, stores. So mm-hmm. you know, this is um, it's it's very interesting. We're we're this is a grassroots kind of underground comics model that Michelle mm-hmm. and I are are revisiting from when we started yeah back in the early 90s and um you know there's a lot of of uh there's a lot that is so great about this kickstarter um print on demand model Mm -hmm. uh in that you know it's it's there's a lot less waste i mean we're we're printing exactly the amount that that people want Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, costs are covered. So we don't, we don't spend a lot of money up front. It's just time and energy. Um, so it's just fantastic, but the, you know, it is tough because we're, 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 you know, the, we're, the price point for the comic on Kickstarter is how much it costs to make. So to, yeah. to sell it at that traditional discount to the stores is tough. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's got to be hard. Yeah. So we found so, but we we didn't want to cut out um, shops that have been supporting me for decades. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I I love those folks, and they're going through a real hard time right now. Yeah, sure. So we did find a way to make up sort of price, but we don't we don't. I mean, not please don't worry if you're a, a retailer listening to this. We don't mind at all, um, but we're not really making much on those retailer orders mm-hmm. um but that's fine because the because the you know we're supported um by the by the structure of kickstarter so everything everything's fine yeah we would like to eventually find a way to um to 
deliver to the direct market in a, in a more robust way. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually love cutting out the middleman. That's, that's how we're affording to be able to do this. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. is that we don't need diamond distribution. <laughs> I, and, you know, that whole thing, we could get into this too. Times are changing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many comic stores across North America are going to be left after this if they're still following those old um, mainstream superhero weekly comic format if they're if they're really married still married to that idea both dc and marvel have left diamond you have to order from them separately i mean at right at a time when you you know people can't be in your shop it's got to be tough yeah so um you know so obviously those of us that make independent comics if if some of those stores disappear who you know if 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 the future of comics is just buying graphic novels at a Barnes and Nobles. Yeah. Um, how on earth is anyone going to find dwellings right. with, with, with that with that structure? So you know we've got to build this new grassroots thing. You know this is the new underground comics. You, you know Kickstarter. I think. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I you know you can't you can put something up on Kickstarter and hope that it's not hope but you know you work your butt off to get it seen and mm-hmm. draw, draw people you know bring people to it. Um and I think that absolutely that's got to be the way to go because you know as so many people have said over and over again when you put your stuff in the store and it's competing with the stuff from the major publishers who put out, you know, how many books a week, right? And right. and with characters that are known the world over, and you know, illustrators who are, you know, and artists who are, you know, just have huge fan bases and followings. You know, how is it that you can you put out, you know, your little book and put it on the shelf there and hope it stands up against those guys, right? Um, and makes you a living at it, or or makes you enough money to print the next book or whatever. Um, that's that's pretty tough going, but the playing field is kind of leveled on Kickstarter and to some degree. It is to some degree. If the book looks good enough and it sounds interesting, I mean, it's global, you know, we're, we're shipping. So we actually are shipping, um, issues of issue two uh, to Amsterdam. Wow. There's a a comic shop in Amsterdam that picked it up. So, you know, like that's, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And, And you know, we, and, and I don't think, that that could have happened with the traditional diamond distribution model. I'm not sure, but you know, so, so we're, we're figuring it out. Michelle and I will figure out a way as we keep trying to, to, to make it work even more smoothly for, for shops that are interested. But I think, and I could be wrong. I'd have to check with, with, uh, with Michelle, but I think there's about 20 comic stores that support dwellings. Hey, well, that's great though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, to, to these days, that's for an independent comic, you know, I think that's great because you've got the audience on Kickstarter and then, you know, you've got an, a nice potential audience through 20 stores. I mean, in some, yeah. Some, yeah. to some degree, you don't really need more than that for an independent comic and to have a, a living, vital kind of interaction with your audience. I mean, well, and, and here's the, yeah. And here's the great thing about the Kickstarter model again, just to reinforce this, because I highly encourage any, any creators to, to try this out. Um, because we've cut the overhead um, and we've cut, you know, we're not overprinting. We don't have to warehouse books. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing is, is that you can sell, Michelle did the math at one point. We would have had, we, we sold about, I don't know, I think there were 400 or 500 copies of issue one. See, it's a tiny print run. Yeah. 
But we would have had to sell 3,000 through traditional diamond distribution to, uh, to make the same amount of money. It's, yeah, unbelievable, right? That's it's, how it's, much gets wasted in that process. I mean, no offense. It's the model that worked and it's the model we have. But, um, yeah. you know, this is just, you can, you can have a niche audience. And it's the same with music now, and I think harder for musicians. But, I mean, just with, with the new tools and the new technology that exists out there, you can make a modest living with a small, devoted audience. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, for an independent artist, that's what it's really about. You know, having a devoted audience. That's, I think that's yeah. what you're, you're after. And clearly that's what you have. And I, I think, I hope Dwellings runs for umpteen issues. How many <laughs> issues do you, do you have in mind for it? Well, I have four written, okay. um, knowing that um, even if it bombed, I could I could follow through with the four. Uh, I have about four more sketched out, kind of like rough ideas after that. So it could, depending on on you know um, interest, it could it could continue indefinitely. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, what I can say, I was so the first issue was a a crapshoot. It was a it was a return to comics with a new business model, new, new technologies, we had no idea what would happen. Right. It was very successful. The second issue has been the more stressful campaign because I was like, yeah. okay, now this is issue two. Can we do it again? Was it a fluke? Um, you know, there is this concept for a lot of Kickstarter um, projects and how it was originally created was it was to fundraise to launch a project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I know there there was some perception that this was just a Kickstarter for the first issue, and then after that we would go traditional. And Michelle was like, no, I don't think that's how it's working for comics on there. You know, he's looking at a lot of Kickstarter comics projects. He goes, mm-hmm. no, I think each project is the new project. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think that people will get that. I don't and, – and so all this to say is that we have matched – um, at this point, with a week left in the campaign, we have pretty much matched the first issue. That's great. So it is working. Yeah, it, and it, and I think that is the way it's gonna it is gonna work. I think, you know, you can see that there are a number of creators up there who put out book one, book two, book three, all via Kickstarter. And, yeah, yeah, that's and, happening now. You know, the flexibility that comes with that. Um, I think it's it's you know really exciting, and it's. Um, it's that is that's what we have right now, and really, it's a pretty darn good model. Um, my fr- I did a Kickstarter w- about a year ago, but I wasn't really prepared for it, and uh, it didn't didn't fly. But um, next time around, you know, I think I've learned from that one, and I think that happens a lot too. You know, you go oh, through yeah. this process where you you learn what works, you learn what doesn't work, and then uh, and finally you get something up there that that takes off, hopefully. But in the case of Dwellings, I'm so glad that both issues have done so well and I'm looking forward to all four of them. And I hope I think all <laughs> at, four least four, at least at four, least four. Yeah. At least four. So we've got your promise here on the show right now in public four issues, at least of dwellings. Uh, I won't hold you to it though, Jay, but, yeah. uh, but I know I can, you're a restless guy and you, you do a lot of, you know, different things. You know, anybody who's, who's followed your career over the years, it's clear that you have a lot of different interests, although there is this, you know, continuity in your work, but it, it manifests itself in lots of different ways. And, uh, who knows, you know, after four issues, you may have a whole nother idea and a whole nother 
set of ideas that you want to get to. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's, and, and if they're burning, you know, badly enough, you're going to have to, I, you know, I know what that's like. You're going to have to have sure. to answer that itch, so to speak. But, but I got to tell you, dwellings is really scratching those itches. Well. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, it really is. That's the other thing too, is like I said earlier, I, I had nothing to lose yeah. with this project. It's for me. And I, that's what I love about hearing you say that you really dig it because it's like, cool, because I made this for me uh-huh. and with the hope that there are other people like me out there, you know, like maybe somebody else thinks a, a, a Harvey style kid comic, you know, uh, 70, early seventies kid mm. comic mashup with a horror movie is going to be cool. And I'm, I'm just glad that there's enough people that, that are, are taking the risk with me. Oh yeah. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. So here's the, the question, right? It seems like it is a perfect, property for animating in animated shorts and i have to ask you is that something that's crossed your mind given your experience oh for sure yeah i mean i'd be open to it i just don't think i want to be an executive producer on anything again (laughs) (laughs) that is that is some stressful stuff um yeah no i i uh but i'd be more than happy to to explore that too but you know that's the other thing too is it's 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 hard enough for me to focus creatively mm-hmm. on a single vision for long enough. Um, it's nearly impossible to be trying to do uh, animation and comics at the same time. I mean, back when Tuttenstein was first being developed, um, I was working on that series Bible and flying back and forth to New York and LA for meetings while doing um, an ongoing comic book series and I think a weekly comic strip at the time. Wow. You know, that's, How did you... that's, that's nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. How did you do that? Um, well, I, I had two young kids at home, so I didn't have a choice. Yeah, oh, man. Oh, <laughs> I just worked money. my ass off. Yeah. You had to bring some money home. So, wow, that is something. Because, that, it, okay, because I don't know that most people, you know, have an idea of how, what kind of pressure goes along with creating a television series, uh, like Tuttenstein, which by the way, won two Emmys for those who aren't familiar, was very successful and was on the, uh, discovery channel. What was it? 2003 through something, 2008, something like that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it won two Emmys and, uh, you know, still, has resonance with people it's still out there and and people can pick it up um i think it's available on youtube yeah and there are a lot of fans for it so um but so highly successful series and you were executive producer on that as well no not on that one sorry sorry i didn't have an executive producer credit on that that's from secret saturdays on tuttenstein i was the creator Mm -hmm. creative creative consultant Mm -hmm. um and the developer of the show but Actually, they did not require my creative services for that show. Oh, okay. So what? So you you put together the pitch, mm-hmm. and you put together the concept, right? That's right. So it's okay. based on it's actually based on a comic book character. So technically, Tuttenstein is a license. It's a licensed. So uh, they licensed it from you. Yes, they did. And uh, Fred Schaefer, who was my producer on that, um, and he's a creative producer. So he he and I work well together developing stuff. Um, it took us about, I think it might've been seven years from the time that it was optioned to the green light. 
Really? To, wow. well, to the first airing. So we spent years um, developing, refining the pitch. Um, and when Discovery Kids finally bit, we were thrilled. But they had some some um, other creative ideas in mind. We were the first cartoon Discovery Kids ever made. I didn't know that. <laughs> we, yeah. Excuse me. Well, simultaneously with a show that was called Kenny the Shark, I think. Also oh, yeah. At the same time. Um, but they'd never done animation before. They had been absolutely strictly documentarians. Um, and so uh, this fit with them really well in that it's it's incidentally educational mm-hmm. in a museum. It's about Egyptian history and mythology. So they loved it. But um, they really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, uh-huh, I'm sure. Yeah. That's their hearts. Uh, so, <laughs> It was development hell. It was it was a nightmare. And so because of that, I, I gradually ended up stepping away slash being edged out of the uh, of the hands on creative process, which was fine. I was still, you know, as as creative consultant, I was still reviewing every script and reviewing all of the artwork and the models and oh, okay. uh, given thumbs up. And um, so I was still involved um, at the time. I was pretty heartbroken. I, at the time I really felt like it was no longer my creation, Mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. I mean, my agent at the time was telling me, you know, how much of, of the work you, you did over those years, do you think is still in? I said, Oh, like 60%, 65%. He said, that's great. Are you kidding? You know, when you go through that kind of, um, you know, many headed Hydra of animation, you've got all these different voices and all these, uh, different uh, uh, p- people to please. It is a miracle that that um, that your storytelling would make it through unscathed. So ultimately, I realized that everything in Tuttenstein is something that I that I um, came up with. Mm-hmm. Just 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 reinterpret it. Um, so now I'm really proud of it. But for a while oh, there, it's hard to stomach. And if I hadn't done that show, I wouldn't have the opportunity to have done Secret Saturdays where I was completely involved at every level. And and so that project was much more satisfying in that in that regard, much more closer to your vision. Yes. Yeah. So um, if there are I mean, things still go wrong, but um, but yeah, that's that's much more that's much closer to what I had um, envisioned for that, which, again, as with all my work, Jeff, it's a love letter to 60s era Hanna-Barbera. Right. And Alex Toth and... Yep. And, yeah, for sure. Uh, and Space Ghost and... Uh, Doug Wildey from... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Johnny Quest. Yeah. Yeah. All of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I was just going to say, I love the um, the Land of Nod um, introduction, I think, of Tuttenstein which is such a great piece of work, but so dramatically different. Oh yeah. Yeah. From, more, more like a children's book, like a, like a Edward Gorey. Um, yes. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That's Absolutely. how it started. Oh my gosh. And it, and it really, the whole style you're using like a charcoal pencil or uh, something like that to, to draw with. And yeah. Um, yeah. The whole feeling and vibe of it. And it, and it, and it you're working with um, kind of a limerick uh, approach like Shel Silverstein or something yeah. like that. And it was beautiful. And, <laughs> and, you know, had this kind of, 
I don't know, just the, this kind of um, evocative quality to it. And it felt like it could have just been a one-off, you know. But then, of course, you know, Tuttenstein is in Jet Cat Clubhouse and mm-hmm. um, some of those other things. The character recurs. and But it's still very, very different. And, and um, I, I was kind of surprised, you know, at how different it was in the animated version. But yes. uh, so when you develop the pitch... You took it and then expanded the world. Is that kind of how you you approached your? Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. So so Fred um, was working for Porchlight Entertainment mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Uh, I met I met him at uh, the San Diego Comic Convention. You know, hawking my wares and that mm-hmm. issue of Land of Nod. So in in the Land of Nod series with Black Eye back then was like dwellings. They were all standalone stories. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Tuttenstein was its own comic yeah. and uh, Fred loved it. He just loved the tone uh, of it. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, and, and, and wanted to option it. So he optioned it for animation. Now, of course, um, as, as it was, so that story alone, I, I suppose that could have been turned into say a short animated film, like a standalone film. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, oh. I suppose it could have, and that would have been true to the material. Oh, UPA film. Yeah, you know what I mean? But yeah. what's the market for that? You know, yeah. um, it, the modern market. So so immediately Fred started asking me questions about, okay, so, you know, outside of this version you've done, can you tell me more about the character? And, you know, can you tell me what the museum's like? And, and we just gradually started developing that, that idea and into a what could be a series, mm-hmm. which is really what the market wanted they wanted to see tuttenstein as a series apparently um and so yeah again years and years of redeveloping it but that's me adding um the character of cleo um and turning the the siamese uh bat (laughs) into into a more practical real world um still talking cat luxor but Mm -hmm. you know and coming up with the 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 cowardly security guard and um Dr. Bedetti and all the supporting cast were uh, eventually in the pitch that ended up making it to um, to Discovery Kids. Oh, so great. yeah, so you just start fleshing it out, and what would it be like if you know it wasn't sort uh-huh. of a whimsical children's book? I guess it's the same thing. I mean, not everybody, not every creator would be interested in this. Believe me, it's not that mm-hmm. fun to say. Well, why do we need to change it? Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I can't imagine, say, somebody approaching. Maurice Sendak and saying, we love where the wild things are. Mm-hmm. Could it be a series? Yeah. Can you do this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, you know, I had, um, an agent, Jean-Marc L'Officier, who was very, um, great at explaining motivations. <laughs> and he, and I had kids at home and he just said, well, why would you say no? He said, if anyone wants to see how you would do Tuttenstein by yourself, it exists. That's it's already true. there. Yeah. Um, so that's your version. Try to think of this as an, you know, an adaptation, you know, this is somebody else's, um, and that, and that made it, uh, easier to find the fun in it. Yeah. Because then you step away from it. Like somebody's doing another version of a song you've written or something. Yeah. 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 What's, what's so, what's so bad about that? I don't need to be a control freak on every level. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Although comic book artists are, you know, that's the thing. 
cartoonists. We are control freaks. But but yeah, you you know, if you think of it in those terms, it's it's certainly going to have more satisfaction for you as a creator that you're, you know, almost like you're doing a play and you put the play out there and then people take it and go where they want to with it. And sometimes right. the version is going to be something very, very different from what you imagined in the beginning. But if you allow for that, then I think you can be more at home with it, more at peace with it. Sure. So Secret Saturdays was was something altogether different. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Completely different process. Um, it was created um, in my spare time for animation. So it had not been in print before. So it was not a licensed property because I did have, you know, these are things I learned from doing tense time. Like, well, it kind of hurts mm-hmm. to have your baby modified you know on some level it feels weird that there's two versions of tuttenstein so i thought well if i create something uh specifically to pitch for animation that then can be modified behind the scenes there can be a back and forth with the network um then there's only one version when it comes out that's it Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i that was about five years of development for secret saturdays was it Uh, real yeah Wow. So and when there, you say there, five years of development, what is involved in that? So I came up with the idea, which originally, believe it or not, was a, a funny animal version called cryptids where the the um, cryptozoological monsters were the stars of the show. And okay. um, took it to Fred Schaefer at Porchlight because uh, he, he's like, well, what else have you got? And I said, well, I've been working on this idea. And he loved he loved the idea of cryptozoology as the basis of a show. So again, they optioned that, and we we set off trying to turn it into a show that somebody would want. Um, I think we we only pitched the funny version once. I think it was to Nickelodeon, and they passed. Um, and he had heard. I think it was Warner Brothers was starting was looking for new action adventure stuff, and that's when Fred asked me. He's like, "What if we? What if we?" you know, tried to make it more of an action show. Mm -hmm. And I went, actually, that's kind of a cool idea. You know, Um, I wonder if I could make it like, you know, like Johnny Quest ish. And so I started to develop it that way. It was in development with Warner brothers for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, We refined it and then they ultimately passed. And so then we had this pitch again, but that had been, we'd had some great input from a major network. Uh, and then eventually pitched it to Cartoon Network, and the timing was right. And um, we got it made there by default, actually. We were one of four pitches. Um, and it had been narrowed down to two. Me and, um, you know, El Santo, the masked res- wrestler? Oh, okay. Yeah. The white-masked Mexican wrestler? Yeah. Um, they were developing an animated series with with uh, with him. Okay. And uh, they won. And then there was some rights issue. And so second place, us, got a green light. It was a total fluke. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, that's like a ro- emotional roller coaster that oh, you're, yeah. you're talking about. I mean, when Warner Brothers passed after a couple of years, you must have been, I mean, to pick up the pieces and carry on must have been really difficult. It is. It's, it's, uh, I mean, you know, ultimately, as anyone who's read uh, DJX knows from the introduction, I mean, it ultimately led to a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of, yeah. And so that's why you can't just pitch animation. It has to be something you do on the side. 
because you can't like seven years from concept to, to air date and then five years from concept, like what are you doing for work in between? Yeah. Um, so, so then this stuff, which is so stressful, edits, changes, new art, these networks want them right away, mm. you know, immediately. And so you've got a day job and you've got to drop it every time this stuff moves forward. So yeah, there's, there's no time to be disappointed. Um, and it is, it's extremely stressful. Yeah. And so ultimately it, it did lead to a breakdown. It did. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm very proud of secret Saturdays, everything, you know, um, but talk about disappointment. I mean, this is, this is, you know, we had, uh, technically two seasons. Mm -hmm. the, the, the first season was like, um, a double long season. So it's actually a lot of people think there's three seasons. It, it wasn't the first season was 26. And the second one was 10. Yeah. I think. Um, but, uh, we, so after all that, we finally get a green light in the year that we're ramped up. We're in development. I moved to LA away from my family in that year that we're, we're, we're doing this cartoon network has a complete staff change. Uh, they get a new head of programming, who fires half the executives and announces, I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but that Cartoon Network is going live action. I don't know, my God. <laughs> yeah. So they, there was a time when Cartoon Network decided that they should um, focus on uh, reality programming. That's and a brilliant idea. <laughs> that, yeah, that lasted. Um, but so by the time we premiered, we'd been abandoned. Most of the executives that had supported and developed the show were gone. Yeah. The head of the network, we weren't a show that he had greenlit. Um, we were an unwanted child. Oh, man. By oh. launch, they underpromoted us. They under-supported us. I mean, I'm not blaming our lack of success on that alone. Right. I'm just saying that's really what, what hurt the most, is that after all that effort, all that stress, and all those years... They couldn't care less. Oh man, yeah. man, that's that, that's heartbreaking. And uh, you know, I don't know. It really takes a strong constitution to come out of that and and survive that kind of emotional, yeah, wreckage. Especially after putting all of those years in and, and being away from my family all that yeah. time too. You know, right. so yeah, for for what? So anyway, I'm not. Look, I'm still very proud of it. I had a great time working. Um, with my fellow animators and the, the staff on that show were terrific. I had a great time. Um, but I wouldn't do that again. You know, yeah. this is why I'm back doing comics, uh, being the control freak I am because, you know, success or failure is, is, is my own. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, the pace is mine. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's just, I don't know, man, I don't know why I thought that, there would be something more fun than making comics. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think anybody who's got, you know, a love of animation and an inclination to tell a story, uh, just, you know, tends to, obviously it's a dream for so many people, myself included. You know, I studied animation for a number of years as a kid and, uh, in college and then, left it and put it aside and then sort of when i got an ipad sort of started to rediscover it just as an individual i love doing animation i love playing around with it and stuff but um yeah, yeah. but you know it's it, it, you, and when you start to do it you know you find 
the heart of an animator, you know, making things move. It can be a beautiful thing to see, but that's kind of lost in the production of a television series. That whole intimate connection to it as a, as an art form, the way Windsor McKay saw it, it's kind of lost in that production. So, you know, and, and, but it's natural, right? It's a natural desire to want to do that. But if you are somebody, an artist is an artist and an artist is, going to find that they are yeah control freak is the word um and also pace is the is important too you know there's an intimacy about about seeing your vision realized and uh, and doing it at, not at the behest of you know a television network which is high demand and high competition um instead you know doing it at your own paces i think that's a healthier thing but you know uh, it's also a great experience to have had and to come out of and to survive and look back and say, look, you know, I'm proud of that. I did that. Mm-hmm. And, and now, you know, my vision is here and I'm going someplace else and I'm going to make this, this is just as important and just as viable and just as meaningful as that experience or maybe more meaningful because I had that experience. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah, no, I, I mean, Obviously, I you know I don't really have any regrets because that's where I was going to go anyway. I, I I don't think I would have done anything differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was the sole provider for a family of four, yeah. and you know, with my particular skill set, you're like, okay, well, you know, this is what I want to be doing. You know, animation is going to get us there. It's going to pay the bills. It's going to yeah, yeah. You know, put food on the table. So. Yeah, I wouldn't have done it any differently. Um, it just was uh, far more draining than I than I could even have imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no regrets. And same same with the Daily Strip, right? Like right after that, mm-hmm. the, the brilliant idea was to go from one super stressful, uh, you know, um, outlier of cartooning to another. And I did the the Oh Brother Strip with uh, with uh, Bob Weber Jr. for. Oh a year and then and then that also ended in abject failure so that's when i decided maybe i should just manage an art store for a few years <laughs> yeah well you know and and you know i mean but that can also have its own pressure but i hope in some ways that maybe it alleviated some of the pressure you oh it, it actually was was far easier it had the curative uh properties that i i thought it might because even though i was managing which which required you know ordering and being on the phone and dealing with customers and all that stuff it was a mom and pop shop mm-hmm. um and you know i wasn't the owner so you know I, you know i'm the captain of the ship some days but um it's not my ship right. so you know i don't ultimately have to make all of the hardest decisions i would defer uh and you know to my boss so it felt good to be part of the production line as opposed uh-huh. to being the executive producer. You know, I, I liked that, you know, I had a specific role, specific hours. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, when I, you know, I'm right back to freelancing now, but in those days when I clocked out at six, mm-hmm. I was done. Yeah. I go home. There was no, there, I wasn't bringing any work home with me. Mm-hmm. That was that I needed that. I think yeah. I needed that to recharge now i'm back to 24 7 creative <laughs> ideas sketching writing and but um you know with with a, a reinvigorated attitude um about why i do it you know i'm doing this for me i'm doing it for fun yeah 
Yeah. And, and you know, and, and it seems that way. And I, I have to say it does it really, you get that, you, you're putting that across in everything that you're doing on social media and everything. And it's coming across in the work, you know, there's this love of comics that, that comes across in the work and, and a love of your project that comes across in the work. And I well, think, thank you. I, I, I would hope so. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It really does. And that makes it, it's like, it's the same thing that you got from, you know, Stan Lee with Marvel Comics back in the day. You you sense that as, as much as he was a huckster and it was a business one, you've got a <laughs> sense of love, his love for what he was doing. And that's kind of, you know, a love of comics. And you wanted to be on board with that as a kid. And and it's the same thing with what you're doing here and, and Black Eye Books is doing. And, and you know, it's this, you you love this. As a fan, I love this, and I'm excited about it. Um, as a reader, I'm excited about where you're going with it. I can't wait to see issue two and what's happening. It's, it's There's this whole enthusiasm that's coming along with it. I think it's kind of contagious, and uh, I, I think that's really exciting. And that, So whatever you've gone through you know, uh, to revitalize and recharge your batteries has really worked, and you know, it's showing up in the work, man. It's really just great. And uh, oh, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, that's great. That's that. That's how I. That's how I feel about it. I'm glad that it that it shows. Yeah. And yeah really enthusiasm does. is the right word. Um, I do feel very enthusiastic about the work I'm doing, and and a, another thing too, like mentioning Stan Lee, um, that's another thing that's really great about modern social media. Um, when I was just, you know. A, uh, a private citizen, let's say, not when I wasn't actively working on projects. Um, so I, I, I found social media to be a bit of a drag, to be honest. I'm yeah. not a big Facebook fan, but um, connecting with people through dwellings, it's like having a living uh, fan letter page, you know, where you're like actually directly, you know, you can give them an update the second that it's done and they can ask you questions. You can, I love connecting to the readers of dwellings. It's so great. Yeah. It, 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 and I could see that. And, uh, I think that that is what's nice about it. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that about social media because I've actually, well, I hear that from all kinds of people, what young and old, you know, people say that the same, same thing. Personally, I, I don't have a lot of, you know, I, I love, seeing old friends on Facebook or whatnot, um, and, and going by and seeing that they're healthy and well. And oh, sure. Yeah. To. But in, in terms of really interacting and spending, I don't get, have the time and the inclination. I think a lot of people say the same thing, you know, it's like, uh, I can't get into these arguments about politics. I can't, you know, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I'd rather drawing. And, and I think, you know, that's just the way it is. But when it comes to, you know, Connecting with people who love your work uh, and who are interested in your work, it's got to be great. It's got to be really gratifying uh, to have that going on. And, and certainly you do uh, on Instagram. Is that your main focus, Instagram? The Instagram? Yeah, yeah, Instagram. Um, I just like the, the way it functions, right? So as you said, it's for visual art. Yeah. It's just that it's the better model because I can, um, you know, post a sketch as soon as it's done and you know, there doesn't, you can't post an, uh, you can't post images in your responses. So it's just about that particular image. And, yeah. and, um, it feels like a way of sharing and connecting and it, it's, um, it's great. And then I actually like looking at my feed because it isn't a lot of politics or, uh, 
pictures of cats uh, <laughs> or other people's babies. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, unless you choose to follow those. So um, you can really, so, you know, for me, I have my Instagram stream tailored to just a lot of cool inspirational art that I like looking at. So it's fun for me to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And and that's the way I use it. The same, same, same way. I just like to, my feed is stuff that is of interest to me visually primarily and comics that I love and all kinds of things, you know, uh, that are interesting and to browse by, you know, it's like looking at a catalog kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and and in the, and it can be refueling, you know. It can energize you, you know. Uh, when you pick up on something visually that's striking, it makes you bring it back to the studio, to the drawing board, or whatever, and putting it to use somehow. Um, exactly. Exactly. You know. So you've got two kids. And are I do. they how, how and uh, tell me a little bit about your kids. Are they they're, grown they're, now? They're grown. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. They're old now. Oh uh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a, a daughter, Nora, who um, is what is she? Twenty two now. Wow. I think so. Uh, and uh, no, no, she's older. Wait a minute. Desmond is twenty one. So my son's twenty one. So she would be. Um, 23 and uh so yeah it's crazy they're 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 big kids doing creative stuff uh my daughter went to um art school in um in montreal and has her degree and has an art teaching degree so she i i try to discourage her from going to art school (laughs) It's, it's no good you don't want this and so she rejected that advice, but compromised and did a four-year program where she came out um, being able to teach art. Okay. Um, so that's cool. And I think her current plan is to go back whenever schools open again um, and do um, an extra degree so she can be an art therapist. Oh, great. Which is like, so she's, she needs a psych degree for that. So yeah, very cool. I'm very proud of her. My son had just started um, in film school. So, yeah, so he, um, yeah, I I couldn't be more proud of both of them. I mean, so he's, he's, uh, he's made a a music video or two, I think already, um, but he wants to make horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) How cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it's, it's so, it's gotta be gratifying to see them growing up and, and happy and healthy and and often being creative artists in their own right. That's really exciting stuff. You know, uh, that's, that's what it's about, you know? Um, and you've done a little teaching of your own, haven't you? Yeah, I have over the years. Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually, um, so I can't say I don't enjoy it, but I don't take to it naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a lot of people I know who are incredible natural teachers. They, Mm -hmm. they do it with ease. Um, I have trouble keeping 10 kids in line. Uh, Uh, I mean, cartooning classes are super fun, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I like to make it fun and then it gets too fun and nobody's paying attention and I don't really know how to handle those situations. (laughs) Yeah. It takes some time. Uh, Well, some people, some people are great at it and, um, I'm not saying I'm like, I don't yell at them or anything. It's not like that. It's just, I don't think I'm a natural, uh, in-class teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if I wanted to, to continue exploring teaching class and i've taught adults as well that that goes a little easier but i find it very stressful 
um, mm-hmm. the, the aspect of live performance. Um, there is that, yeah. Uh, but I do think, and I've done some instructional art books as well, right? So like, yes, those are great, yeah. So thanks. Um, so I do think, though, um, because I have had quite a bit of experience doing it, I think I might consider doing some like demos, like some uh-huh. online demos and do and sort of trying to um, translate these lessons that I've that I've created myself for these classes I've taught and try to translate them into maybe some YouTube videos or something. Oh, yeah, that would be so cool. I think kids would get a lot out of that. Um, you know, take one of your books and and work, do a little demonstration from one of your your instructional books. Those would be yeah. really, that could be really cool. And and I think kids would like that, you know, and parents would probably be thankful for it, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I can't I can't make any uh, promises to deadline for something like this. But I have been <laughs> thinking about it sometime in between a couple of issues of dwellings. I might I might start doing those. Yeah. Well, that would be that. Yeah, I think that's a viable approach to teaching, and uh, you know, certainly expands the toolbox. But you know, there's the one thing about teaching or offering your skills, you know, uh, to another audience is that gratification of handing them off in a way. Watching the baton being, you know, passed from one generation to another generation can be very, very gratifying. Although it's hard to believe we're at the age where we're talking about things like that. Um, you know, handing things off because uh, you're still so vital and still so much. <laughs> in the of, you know? Thanks. I wasn't so sure about that when I started this are. project too. I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to start a new comic, am I? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I think I'm, I'm 50 years old. Do I have the right? You know, yeah. To- like I think, aren't I supposed to be up to pasture? Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'm, you know, I. That's why, like I said, I had nothing to lose. I'm I'm making this for fun, and even if ten people had backed it, I would have been I would have been grateful. Yeah, but w- how many backers do you have on on? Did you have on Dwelling One and Dwellings One and? I think I think know? it was a, I think it was around four or five hundred, but that I includes that includes stores who ordered multiple copies. That's fantastic. Yeah, Just, yeah. that's great. You know, and that's the uh, I mean that's how much more do you need? You know, I mean the audience that's, you can have a small and enthusiastic audience. We don't need 30,000 people. No, no, no. I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to, you know, make a, make a, you know, decent minimum wage style living, uh, doing what I love. And because, you know, that's great. This is way more fun than, um, a day job that would pay the same. So as long as there's enough people to support the, the time, uh, you know, blood, sweat, and tears that I pour into it. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. I like I'm. I, I don't need to get rich, and I don't need to be famous again. Or if I ever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just I just want to have fun making this project and and get it directly to the people that 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 are into it. You know, um, yeah. it seems so simple, um, and I I'm so grateful it's working. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. It really is exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to more and more of this, whether you do dwellings, you go into something else. Um, it, what you're doing is really exciting and wonderful to see. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you've come back to comics after a long period of time working in animation and, you know, doing all of those things, and then finding your way back to something that's personal and intimate and doing it for the love of doing it. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about, you know. Too often, I 
think what happens as we get older, you know, I mean, you could be embittered by an experience like, like you had and turn your back on it all. And instead you did something else, you know, you found a way to retrench and, and then refuel and, um, reinvent. And I think that that's a great, you know, I mean, there's no greater life lesson really you know, than that. And, and because life is filled with disappointment, right? It's got it excitement, you know, there's the possibility of success and, and that that's there, but life is a lot, a lot of times life is just filled with great disappointment and finding ways of, of coming back against that and, and building on that and using it to strengthen you is, is, uh, is not always the easiest thing to do. And no, 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 it took some time, but, um, yeah, yeah I never, I never once thought that, uh, it wasn't fair. Uh, yeah. you well, know what I mean? Like I, I kept thinking, okay, well, you know, this is, this is par for the course, but, um, what's amazing about it, as you say, as a, as an example, you know, I would like to, to express this to anyone out there that is feeling discouraged is I don't think there's any question. I think Jeff, you've agreed already that, um, I think, I, I think my work's better than ever. Yes. Um, so, you know, sometimes there is, you know, we go through, um, shadowy valleys, you know, but I, I, I really do feel like, um, I'm more passionate, mm-hmm. um, and better at drawing and writing than I ever have been. So just, you know, keep the faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, that's, that's about the best place to, uh, to end the, the discussion in the interview as I can think of keep it. <laughs> yeah. You said it, Jay. And, uh, yeah. I think I totally agree. You know, I mean, you, the breadth of your work is, is terrific in cartooning. It's, it's invested in all kinds of different ways, but I think what you're doing now, you're absolutely right. There's a mastery here that comes with, uh, you know, a certain amount of experience and, um, that's, what's on display really masterful cartooning. And, uh, you know, it's exciting to see. And, um, with that, thank you, Jay, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I think this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I hope you'll come on again sometime, maybe the next, maybe when dwellings three comes out, uh, you'd be great to have you back. It'd be, it'd be fun to talk, uh, to do a whole show, just talking about, uh, my love of peanuts. <laughs> oh, Hey man, I would, you know, that would be cool too. We didn't yeah. even get to that. And that no. would be, that would be so cool. So, you know, yes, absolutely. Because, uh, that is a topic near and dear to my heart. So, um, uh, I would love to do that, uh, with another fan. Well, I think I'm going to try and hold Jay to that. Uh, maybe bring him back when dwellings number three is ready to, do its Kickstarter and spend a little time talking peanuts too. That would be so rewarding, so exciting to do. It's always fun to talk about peanuts with another fan and particularly another cartoonist, a great cartoonist who is a big fan. And uh, yeah, wow, I'm psyched for that. So, okay, Jay, wait for the call. Okay, so Jay Stevens, Dwellings, Kickstarter. Now, last week, you got to get there got to get contribute to those stretch goals Uh, make sure you get that book because uh you know this is it's now or never right you got to get it now so uh finding the comic shop that may be carrying it might be hard to do so 
I'm telling you, it's worth it. So head on over to Kickstarter. I think you can find it by looking Kickstarter Dwellings Jay Stevens or Kickstarter Projects Black Eye Books. Look up Dwellings and Jay Stevens and Black Eye Books and you will find it on Kickstarter for sure. There are five days left. This is Sunday. So uh, by golly, don't wait, okay? Because uh, you don't want to miss this one. Um, just great. Great to have Jay Stevens making comics again. And this is... A dream project, I think, for fans of his work, and and it sounds like for him too. So yeah, dwellings, dwellings number two, and be on the lookout for dwellings number three and anything else that's coming from Black Eye Books. You can get all kinds of news from them at blackeye.ca. Jay Stevens, for those who don't know, is spelled J A Y S T E P H E N S. Okay, so if you're, uh, don't confuse it with Stevens with a V. It's Stevens with a PH. And be sure to follow Jay's Instagram account at jpopgun. That's at jpopgun, J-A-Y-P-O-P-G-U-N. And Black Eye Books is at Black Eye Books. So this is a moment where I want to take just a second and shout out to a couple of Instagram accounts, comics that I've been following for a little while now, uh, or maybe I've been following for a little more than a little while, uh, who just whose work just happens to interest me, and I find interesting, and I think you'll find interesting, and that excites me, and uh, I think I just want to give a shout out to, and hope people will go there. And uh, first on my list today is at John Boren Comics, at John Boren Comics. That's J O H N. B-O-R-E-N comics, okay? Uh, John is doing some autobio stuff, just started doing some autobio stuff that I think is really well worth your time. And this is a talented cartoonist who does some some beautiful illustration uh, and has a great flair for, I think, excavating some of the things that we all feel inside and don't always express, particularly, you know, as we get older and, and John's comics are dealing with, with that material now. But he's got lots of stuff on that Instagram feed that I think you'll find of interest. So check out John Boren Comics, okay? J-O-H-N-B-O-R-E-N-C-O-M-I-C-S. Another one I think you ought to check out if you haven't already, uh, and it's it's pretty popular on its own, is Hot Flashes and Hangovers. That's at Hot Flashes and Hangovers. It's Teresa Henry. She, she's doing a comic strip uh, about women and other humans, and it is it, it's some terrific cartooning. Just you know, beautiful, uh, lively, vibrant, uh, alive comics characters. Uh, beautifully realized, beautifully colored, and very funny. So check out Hot Flashes and Hangovers by Teresa Henry. Another one that I just happened to stum- stumble across uh, in the last couple of weeks, maybe the last month or so, is one that is just hits me in the sweet spot, hits me where I live, because you all know I'm a big comic strip fan. I'm a big Dick Tracy fan. We just had Joe Staten on the show, which was an honor and a thrill. Uh, Dick Tracy at Dick Tracy Rogues Gallery. And that's all one word, Dick Tracy Rogues Gallery. Um, It's the work of Howie Noel. And this stuff is just, it's vintage looking. Um, He is, he's mad about Dick Tracy. He he lives in the world of Dick Tracy and, and his work just, man, if, if they're looking for somebody to take up the mantle after, uh, after Joe, whenever that is, decides to retire. Um, Howie Noel is the guy. Uh, it, it's got to be the guy. Dick Tracy Rogues Gallery. Um, all one word. 
<laughs> it's it's terrific stuff. He's got a great sense of design, great flair. Um, you know, it's it's the kind of cartooning Jay and I are talking about here today. Uh, cartooning that is, you know, stripped down, minimalized, but, you know, elegant and thoughtful. And at the same time, it's pushing the envelope with Chester Gould's great exaggerations. And uh, he loves all that stuff. And he's really found his... This is his, his, his metier, you know, this is his, uh, well, I hate the word wheelhouse. I keep saying that, but that seems to be appropriate here. Um, this is his thing, you know, Dick Tracy's rogue, rogues gallery. Um, wonderful stuff. And, uh, you, you, if you love Dick Tracy, you're going to love Howie Noel's at Dick Tracy rogues gallery. Okay. So. I'm going to continue to do that. I'm I'm always looking for new stuff to follow. Stuff that just hits me, you know, um, that I get excited about and I want to share with you. I've got this podcast. Hey, why not, you know, call attention to the attention, uh, your attention, to stuff I might have found uh, that, that you'll dig. I hope you'll dig. Uh, and so that brings me to my own work. You can f- you can support this podcast by heading on over to patriot.com slash Jeff Grogan. Uh, I'm over there <laughs> accepting support in whatever manner you can uh, and whatever amount uh, you can contribute. Of course, it's appreciated whatever you can send this way to support this podcast. It does take time. It does take a, a bit of work. It's work I love, though, and uh, I'm happy to bring to you. Uh, but nevertheless, if you're looking for a way to support the podcast, certainly patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, that's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N, uh, is one way of doing it. Um, another way of doing it is supporting me on Instagram at green screen comic. If you can, if you're into, uh, my new project, follow me at green screen comic or at spiking the lens. But these days at green screen comic is, is what I'm working on currently. Uh, and that is one word, green screen comic. Uh, so follow, just follow me there. That, that just makes me such a happy fella. And, uh, you can also, uh, follow me on Webtoons canvas. You can look for green screen and subscribe there. Uh, you can, there's like 10 episodes up there right now. I'll give you an idea of whether you're going to like the comic or not. And, uh, I hope you enjoy it. So subscribers there always welcome always happy to have more subscribers and if you really dig it then you might want to uh head on over to patreon.com slash or what no not patreon head on over to etsy.com slash shop slash jeff grogan art and pick up a copy of it or on comiXology or drive through comics so that that's everything i think for now I really, uh, I'm really excited about this episode. I'm so happy that Jay Stevens was here. Again, be sure to check out the Kickstarter in the next five days. If you don't, go to BlackEye, BlackEye.ca, and pick up the digital downloads of uh, Dwellings One and Dwellings Two when it comes out. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Okay, I hope to be back relatively soon. So uh, keep your ears to the ground and. Uh, I'll, I'll be talking to you. And in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.